Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, regular listeners, you may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Thank you for downloading this episode of The Honey & Co. Once a month, we invite someone we admire for a chat in front of a small audience in our deli, Honey and Spice. Every speaker gives us the opportunity to cook food inspired by their cuisine for the audience to try. We sit back with a glass of wine and hear about a life made in food. This week, we're joined by the fascinating Kristen Schnepp of the Gringa Dairy in Peckham. Kristen left a corporate banking life to follow her passion and make artisan Mexican cheese. The Gringa Dairy started in April 13, and she's never looked back. I had the opportunity to shadow Kristen in a dairy for a day, and even though I'm no stranger to hard work in a hot, hot kitchen, a few hours there were plenty for me. Kristen is interviewed by her own Elizabeth Hallett about how she made such a drastic career change, what it's like to work under a railway arch, and much more. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Honey and Spice, and uh, thank you for joining I've already had a little visit to the cheese dairy in Peckham because there's something about it that completely catches the imagination because it's bonkers. And uh, it was just thrilling to come and see you. Taxis, two other taxi company, various businesses. And then here's Kristen making cheese. And I just think it's an amazing thing to have done. And I want to hear some more about the journey to becoming a cheesemaker. Tell us about your little railway arch. Mm -hmm. I have been going on and on about wanting to have a career change. And I was going on and on and on and on and on and on about it. And so my wife, who is a genius, said, I would like a business plan for my birthday. Genius. <laughs> so it was the kind of classic put up or shut up moment. Decide what it is that you want to do and then go forth and do it. And so through that process, um, uh, it came to be decided, which we might get into that, that to, to do what we wanted to do, to become an urban dairy, was going to make the most sense for the business that I wanted to start. Because uh, it was going to ultimately be cheaper to move the cheese and it was to move the milk than it would be to move the cheese to the customers and it just made sense. And so I started to look for space and this was really around the time of the Olympics. Okay. And so you know, business had kind of stopped really in London and it was very, very difficult to find space. It was also very difficult to find space that wasn't going to be a ten year lease with 
a million pound deposit. And so I found uh, working with Network Rail that you could take uh, a space that was of the right size, that I could build the dairy space inside it. And even knowing that they're the worst landlords on the planet, um, it was the right thing for the business. So I am situated in Peckham off the old Kent Road under the Queen's Road Peckham line in beautiful pastoral southeast London making cheese. And you can hear the railway above you, can't you? Every sort of that disconcerting rumble as the trains go, go by. And yeah. at first, you're like, is that thunder? It's like, no, it's the trains. And occasionally it will do you know, interviews like this, and so you'll be chatting, and then, and then it's like, oh, stop. So, yes, it's, it's very, very urban. So but it's is not vibration good for the cheese? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not really totally unlikely to chuck in a career and decide to work in the food business because going right back to the beginning in California mm. you your father had a food business of his own yes so my father was a gourmet food broker and distributor so he's in San Francisco and he served restaurants um, first-class airlines and he had all these interesting lines from all over the world and I thought that was very very exciting and uh, I had helped him ultimately put his business together and value it and sell it. And I worked with him for a little while and actually had the opportunity to take the business over, but I decided that wasn't really my path. But doing that, of course, there was a large cheese program in the business and I found it very romantic. I had always wanted to do something with cheese. And who knows why, you know, why do you want to be a rock star? I mean, I was found it very romantic, but I knew I didn't want to shop because retail's not my thing, uh, and I just didn't know what I, what would be possible. And it wasn't until moving back to the UK I had the realization that I could make cheese myself, and that was just the uh, very much of that eureka moment. Going, I can make cheese. <laughs> uh, so the rest is kind of and we I should, fell along. We should say that your career. Before becoming a cheesemaker, mm. dairy maid, as it's now said. Oh, is, is, is it must be said. This is, outfit just happened, you know. Yeah, I was like, so we had a very crazy day, so it was the, I have to leave the dairy, I've left chaos in my wake, but yes. <laughs> but be- before this, you were working in a completely different, you had an office job. Oh, yes. You were working in banking. Banking. So, yes, uh, I spent over 20 years in corporate life. Uh, I ran strategy and business development for consumer lending at Lloyd's Banking Group. Before that, um, I worked at Wells Fargo, and before that, I was in technology. So, you know, gave up suits and, a, and an assistant. Some days, <laughs> just some days, right? Um, but it was very, very different. And I think that was one of the big hesitations I had about starting the, having a business which was, you know, when you work in corporate, you can decide when the presentation is done. You can decide when when enough is enough. You know the cheese will tell you. It's I think it's pro- I don't have children, but I imagine it's much like having a toddler. Uh, so it's like it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's not fine. I'm going to have a strop on 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 the floor, and then you're just going to have to ride it out. And so that was really nerve wracking when I'd spent my whole life as a knowledge worker uh, with vacation and you know the ability to wear fashion. Th- that's all gone now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but these things um, are still coming right back round to being in San Francisco. That's mm. what's interesting, isn't it? Because if your father had a really diverse gourmet food business, then that means you were steeped in interesting food. Mm. And you said to me that you 
had really loved eating Mexican food at home. And San Francisco has always been a brilliant place Mm -hmm. to have the best kind of food. It's got a really interesting food culture, hasn't it? It does. So I grew up in the Central Valley of California, which has a dominant Mexican population. And so that's a culture that I grew up with and where my love of Mexico came from. And it was really hilarious. And that's also the genesis of the name Gringadere because I was an incredibly white girl living in an environment where everyone was beautiful, dark skin, and you know, this amazing, rich cultural tradition with these huge families and large weddings and, you know, Hi. So, I mean, I love the culture and I love everything about it. And then when I um, got to that, you know, 17, 18, moved up to San Francisco, to me, that was an amazing change, right? San Francisco food culture and San Francisco itself is a, is a great community. And it, it is hilarious. And Lori and I sometimes laugh about this. At the time, I felt like San Francisco was this huge cosmopolitan city. It's amazing. You live in London, you're like... This is kind of a small village, you know. San Francisco doesn't have the same feeling that it does after living in London. But one thing I love about San Francisco is the, the neighborhood vibe. And I also love the, 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 the evolution of the food culture in California. So Alice Waters, starting in the 70s and 80s, she really was the first person to put all the ingredients on the menu. And that development of food culture in San Francisco, which was about being close to food, having sustainable food chains, understanding where your food came from, and also creating that hierarchy of eat local, and you know, if it's not local, is it sustainable? And if it's fantastic, eat terroir. You know, if you're gonna get something that is fantastic, that comes from a corner of the planet, and you're gonna have all the air miles to get it to you, get the best thing that you can get. And that was very much the evolution, I think, of the food culture in San Francisco, and very much informed the chefs of the day in the 80s going into the 90s, and then now it's even gone beyond San Francisco into this kind of retro fusion, you know, still taking it on and on and on to develop the food culture. And of course, there are the debates that were happening in San Francisco, and I think as we chatted, but that are happening now, which is the, this is very middle class, very, very, very privileged, we're spending lots of money for our food, what does that mean when it comes to social justice? And those debates were happening in San Francisco, and frankly, I think they're still happening, and they're good debates to have. Um, but it, it, it's wonderful to see, having lived through that you know, with my father's business, to see those conversations also happening in London now, as food is really taking on you know, a, a different view in society. Yeah, I mean, it's um, one of those things that statistically we are probably spending less on food than people used mm-hmm. to yeah. in the 1930s mm-hmm. as a proportion of our income. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, you know, so we, sh- we should all be spending more and we should all be spending more on good things, but mm-hmm. there's all sorts of issues around education mm-hmm. and diet, mm-hmm. information that's accessible to people. So mm-hmm. it's quite a complicated thing, isn't it? I think it's very complicated. And of course, you know, my religion about it may not be yours or, or yours. You know, we have different views about what yeah. is important. I mean, I think one thing that I'm struck by that what's happening right now is that if you can't afford it, you don't want a three pound chicken. 
you know, if you can afford food, buy the best food possible and not race to the bottom for the food chain. But also realize, and I think as we had chatted, you know, and where I sit in Peckham, you know, a stone's throw from Borough Market, I have no issue with someone selling, you know, 40 pound a kilo beef or lamb or whatever and telling the whole story about, you know, this lamb was named Bob and, you know, this is the provenance of that lamb. Um, and by the same time, also recognizing that a half a mile away, people are living on food banks. And the problem that we have in the UK, I think, today is since the United States has been messed up for so long, that there is the culture of charity around food and people have not yet gotten to the habit of understanding how to give to food banks and changing the food bank culture I think in the UK and so I think our challenge is to love the 40 pound a kilo lamb named Bob and respect that and also to use that privilege to educate and change and, and make change around what's happening in, and on, on the other end of the spectrum. I think it's really true that people love to have a story about their food and that understanding provenance and the choices that you're making being the best informed they could be is something that really plays into what you've done with your business mm -hmm. because there is a story to the business mm -hmm. in terms of your background, mm -hmm. your loves, your throwing up a career and finding a railway arch mm -hmm. just at the point of the Olympics, mm -hmm. which is a nice touch. <laughs> um, and so tell us a little bit more about the challenges of setting up a mm -hmm. food business in an urban environment, mm -hmm. because as you say, you didn't choose retail because yeah. it's not your thing, but choosing dairy in Southwark Council yeah. presumably had quite a few challenges of its, its own? A few bumps? Just, just, just one or two. I mean, food business is hard, right? And um, it's a lot of work, and food business people, I'm sure you, could, you will agree to know that, you know, there's whatever you're doing, there's going to be a lot of challenges. And so the challenges I understand are around dairy, um, but that's not to say that dairy is, is special. What, what, what makes dairy exceptionally the, the one thing that's exceptional about dairy, at least dealing in an urban council, is you're dealing with your environmental health officer who treats milk like nitroglycerin. <laughs> so each food business is overseen, or each restaurant is overseen by environmental environmental health officer, and they oversee the food producers in, in their council. And so what happens is they, they come and assess your food safety, but, you know, they're not, they don't have the, now they do, my, my, my EHO has now gone on of, food safety cheesemaker class and is awesome. But at first, it was really daunting for her. And, I, and, 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 and so the early years were very challenging um, because I was new and she was new. But now, we've, now four years down the road, it's, I now understand that every time the EU, every time FSA comes forward, they pull my file. You know, because it's just people are worried about dairy. Uh, they're worried about raw milk. Um, I don't believe that this fear is warranted, but this is the environment that we're living in right now, that milk, raw milk, is treated with suspicion by food safety. So we've just created a, a relationship that's taken a while to get to. But yeah. It sounds like it's kind of a partnership if she was learning at the same time you were. Yes, it is now. And I think that there was some very much that notion of 
if you're going to make my life difficult, let's let's defuse this situation and get you on side. And so I think that's kind of the if you are setting up a business, you know, getting these people on side early and keeping going at it is incredibly important when it comes to setting up a business that is viewed as high risk. Because the thing is, you talk to someone who's brewing or baking, they go, yeah, I see my EHO every three years. You know, I see her every 12 months like clockwork. Uh, and if you know, full audit, whole nine yards. And now it's fine because the thing is, as a food producer, you know, you welcome their input. There's nothing better than having someone come into your place and go, oh, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And you get to that point, which is great, um, because the earlier point is, is too difficult, which is, I'm sure you're doing something wrong, let me just find it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so the movement of milk mm. was one of the reasons that you thought, we're not going to set up this business in the country because you're going to make cheese and it's going to be expensive to send it to your yeah. customers because your customers predominantly in London yes. for the time being. Yes. And so you have to get the milk to your railway yeah. arch. How, how does all that happen? How does that work? And how, how did it work at the very beginning <laughs> as opposed to how does it work now? <laughs> oh, that was a very different story. So the first thing was finding someone who could sell me milk. And so the difficulty about the milk industry in Britain was, was actually eye-opening to me because when I first moved nine-ish years ago, I was so excited to see all these small family farmers. Like, this is awesome, because you know, family farm is, is dead in the United States because of, of agribusiness. So I was like, great, this is fantastic. Well, then what I discovered is actually the choke point is, is in the processors. So the Arlas and those people are control milk. And so the, each milk producer is, well, not each one, so you'll have independence. It's very difficult to be independent, but they're bound by a contract. And that contract is very unfair to the farmer as a rule, as a rule. And so, but they also can't sell any milk outside the contract. But if you go to say Arla and say, can I you know, do a side contract? You're too small for them to want to bother with a contract. So you're like, let me get this straight. I'm too small for you to bother with, but I'm too large to take any milk. So, you know, how is this fair? So I've called the NFU. I called women farmers. I called every cheesemaker I knew. You know, finding milk was an enormous challenge. But it does bring up the, the issue that I think you and I had chatted about, which is that milk in the UK right now is really under a huge threat, and farmers are really, really struggling yeah. because of the contracts and um, the prices that they're able to get for their milk. Mm -hmm. So for me, the thing that became very clear very early is that I need to pay a fair price to a farmer mm -hmm. to get milk that I'm happy with using, and I can also understand, and I can't control it because I'm not the farmer, but be in a close relationship with the farmer to we can have an open conversation about what's happening with the milk. Because milk is a living ingredient, and it mm -hmm. changes every day. So for example, today, uh, because of seasonality, it used, for queso fresco, which I made today, clockwork, 7.2 liters per kilo of cheese. Today, it was 7.6. And there's, I can go on for hours about why that was true, but you know that means that you don't have enough, you, at the end of the day, you're not gonna end up with enough cheese. And so you have to be able to talk to your farmer and say, oh, can we put some more silage into the feed so we can have better yield and rah, 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 rah. So the relationship is incredibly important. 
But to answer your question, sorry, I get really excited about milk. <laughs> sorry. But it is, so um, I uh, was borrowing a van from a, another cheesemaking colleague. I pick up the milk in 35 um, liter churns. And so you, you unload the churns, you go, you fill them up as the cows are being milked. You roll them back and put them in the van, take them out of the van, take them into the arch. And then I had a pulley system that Lori put together so I could dip it into the vat because 35 liters of milk is 35 kilos of weight. <laughs> so you have to lift it up and turn it. But now um, I have IBC, so I have a thousand liter plastic containers that now fill and I don't have to lift anything. But super buff there for a while. <laughs> Are you still driving to fetch or? No, because that was, that, was, that was a near divorce moment. It's like, we gotta figure this out. Because it was just, you know, the day would start at, at I would get up at 4.10 and we'd be done at 9.15 at night. So that was just, that's not long-term sustainable. And you're sitting there at dinner going, yeah, my day was fine. So um, we now, we do collect some milk, but now I have milk delivered. Right. And um, the farmer comes, he has his own IBC, it comes in his van, and then we transfer it at the farm. And that's good for the farmer and that's good for us. So it's a win-win relationship. And so how much milk are you actually having delivered? Every, uh, every day. Yeah. So today it was seven, uh, 17, about 1,700 liters a day. Right. Some days are smaller, but yeah. So yeah, there's 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 a lot going on right now, and this is new. So one of the reasons that we're so tired is the business has just kind of, you know, it goes through spurts, and when you take restaurants on, it's kind of. So we have just grown amazingly just recently, and so now we're making a lot of cheese. The elves are very busy in the background. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. <laughs> and so creating a product that's quite niche, mm-hmm. and, and you know, there's not much competition for Mexican cheeses being made in the UK. Oddly enough. Or is there? You're going to tell me there is. There isn't. Well, the, com- the competition is substitution. Right. So, yeah, I'm, I, I'm it. Um, there was someone in the market for a while, a few years ago, but they've exited the market. Okay. Uh, and right now, I'm it. So the competition is substitution. But you always have to be alive that competition is will come in one way or another. My hope is that competition is going to come in the far, form of a large industrial type producer because that just maintains our niche. Um, mm. But <clears throat> you know, you just have to keep reading the tea leaves and see what happens. <laughs> But presumably, working on a niche product also mm-hmm. allows you to collaborate with the people that you're hoping to sell your cheese yeah. to. That's been the best part about the business. I think that um, I don't have a love for retail, but I think it's also more difficult to do retail because you're one step removed from the consumer. And I'm sure, as all you Honey and Co. people know, chefs are very demanding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, they're demanding and they're very clear about their demands and so as a, as a young cheesemaker um, and having an open relationship with your customers you, your cheeses can get better fast because it's really important uh, as it my products are artisan so there is variability but for someone who does artisan cheese as like a cheese board cheese you can have this type of variability you know there's a lot of variability that's possible my variability needs to be pretty darn narrow because it, it goes in the food and so the collaboration that we have with chefs and then the open relationships we have and also the I messed up okay and also they're like oh, our fridge died can you you know you have those relationships and you just it pays forward and and that's the thing I love the most about what I do is the relationships that we have with the chefs you know it, it can be even though that I it's now not just me uh, it, it can be really lonely Right, and so these people are my colleagues, and they've really enriched the business by having those relationships. Yeah. And you've just been at a cheese festival in the last weekend. Oh yes. How did the, that go? Oh gosh, it was bonkers. We um, had the London Cheese Project at Camden. I don't know if anyone um, was able to attend, and so it was myself and Patrick McGugan, who is a writer, food writer, and cheese guy, and Matthew Carver from the Cheese Truck. They do artisan toasties, and he's now open the cheese bar and all that sort of thing. We are the London Cheese Project. Mm. <laughs> Sounds really official, doesn't it? And so we put on the festival, and the concept of the festival was an urban producer would be partnered with a street food trader, and the street food trader would make dishes with your cheese. And so it was really a blowout success, and um, mm. lots and lots of people came, and so we were really excited about that, but it was quite overwhelming. Is, is this going to be an annual event? Well, we or have to decide. We're going to get together on Friday and have lots of drinks and decide what we're going to do next. <laughs> <laughs> well, the best decisions are always made on a few drinks. Oh, yeah, so. absolutely. <laughs> In the same way that, you know, a business plan made for somebody's birthday present. It's the way to start. was never going to in, in, in involve the divorce bit where <laughs> things start to stretch a little more than you thought. So you're... Making three cheeses. Mm-hmm. So tell us about the cheeses right. and and what's the difference between right. the three that you. So should we we grab the? Oh, we'll pass them as you. Oh, oh yeah. Ooh. I feel so official now. 
I make three cheeses, and these are three of the most popular cheeses in Mexico. So let's do we, them one. Let's do this? them one at a time, and let's Which start one with this start one. With the fresh one. So this is queso fresco. Queso fresco is 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 fresh cheese in Spanish, um, and every culture in Latin America has a version of this cheese. Frankly, um, almost everybody has something like this, except probably in Britain and mainland Europe. It's just a very fresh, very easy to eat uh, cheese. This this cheese was in a cow this morning. <laughs> it was in a cow this morning. Uh, so this was just made. So um, actually, not this one. Sorry, the ones over there were in a cow this morning. I just lied to these people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did that well, Ed Peg, yeah, I'm a liar. Okay. So uh, the cheese is commonly used to finish dishes. It's crumbled over grains or greens and um, adds kind of a creamy element to a dish. The cool thing about queso fresco is it's like a less salty feta or a less dense halloumi, but you can use it like both. Not on a grill like halloumi, but if you're in a pan and you have a nice big piece like this, it'll keep its shape, but if it's in a small piece, it will melt. And so there's some places in Mexico that will use this cheese to um, stuff peppers and it will melt. Uh, and though there's also other places, they do, they do it in uh, tortas, which is a Mexican sandwich, and just have a nice big slab of the cheese with sauteed greens on top. So that refreshing taste like milk, very fresh, very simple, is the hallmark of queso fresco. Okay, and um, so which, which, which Next one? Next we go with Chihuahua. Do you know how long it takes to milk these little dogs? <laughs> Ages. So, uh, queso chihuahua, uh, chihuahua is a state in the north of Mexico where the dogs and the cheese comes from. Uh, the cheese is also called queso menonita, so it's believed the Mennonites um, brought this cheese to Mexico. It is Mexican cheddar. Okay. And it's one of the inspirations for Monterey Jack. So if anyone's familiar with American Mexican food, that tang on the, other, on the underside is what it's about. Now the important thing about Chihuahua, and important frankly about all these cheeses, is they're designed primarily for cooking. And so even though that you can, of course, just eat them, Chihuahua really shines when it melts. And so you know when you melt cheddar and it gets kind of gloopy and oily? Yeah. So when you melt it, it, gets, it melts very, very smoothly with not a lot of oil. It maintains the tang, um, but it, it just provides that nice, clean milk, which is why people like the cheese truck use it, because they make it with a toasty. You don't have the oil. It's a nice, clean milk. Mm -hmm. So that's Chihuahua. Um, and can, can it's, you tell us how old that cheese was made? That cheese was made... This is relatively young, and that's one part of the... We've been so busy, mm -hmm. we try to keep our... It has a total shelf life of 60 days. And I try to send it out at about day 20 to 25. This one was made on the 5th of May. So, because we've just been, ah! So, but they are all young. And the previous one? Uh, that, that yeah, so it is, so I make it today and it's on the truck right now. So it has a total day of, of it's total shelf life of 15 days, and it's nice from day one. I don't like using the Chihuahua before days five or seven, you know, just a little too raw. Um, but they are all fresh cheeses. The cheese itself looks like it may be pressed, but it's pressed by hand. So they're all hand-molded, handcrafted. This is queso Oaxaca. Oh, do, can we show them a ball yeah. in the... Thank you. Oaxaca... 
O-A-X-A-C-A is, because um, the restaurant smells it phonetically, is a state in the south of Mexico. Oaxaca is, is arguably the most popular cheese in Mexico. Um, and, it, and it's wrapped up in a ball like this. It's a pasta filata style cheese, which is pulled paste, essentially. So we take the curd, it's stretched by hand in uh, 65 degrees centigrade water, and that's fun, uh, into these long ropes, salted, and then wrapped up. We wrap it up for retail, but then we keep it in, in short kind of, it looks like cheese string sticks for, um, for, for wholesale. And then it's also people say, like, oh, it's a posh cheese string. <laughs> so it's essentially what it's like. It is a mo the mozzarella style, only a little bit farmier with a little bit more of a flavorful presence. This is a, like a mozzarella, is a melting cheese, and um, like also like a mozzarella, it doesn't give off a lot of oil, and when it cools down a little bit, it plasticizes a bit, but it just keeps that kind of slightly farmy flavor. The cheeses are all very, very mild, um, and that's by design. They tend to go in the food. Uh, and so they add a, they add a flavor element to to any dish that you're making. So don't expect Stilton. That's that's not what's going on. <laughs> and and this cheese was said to be brought. Yes, by brought by Italian immigrants, Italian immigrants in the 1950s. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So well, provolone provolone came to the Yucatan Peninsula um, as as part of colonialization. Yeah. You know so. Um, Sorry. So yeah, there was there was there was, a, there was so that's so provolone and also Edom cheese is happening down in the Yucatan Peninsula because of colonialization. This was an immigrant um, movement. Now it's funny you say this oftentimes to Mexicans in their life. This is not true. This is absolutely not true. But evident, preponderance of evidence is is in the 1950s it was brought in by Italians. Yeah. And what what difference does it make then if you're using English milk mm -hmm. to make Mexican cheeses compared with the milk that would be being used in Mexico. I mean, I, I, I told you I'd have to kill you. No, <laughs> don't do that. Then. <laughs> no, um, because one of the things that you had said, mm -hmm. um, you you use different milks anyway, don't yeah. you? So For the um, different types of cheeses. Yeah, no, it is it is all cow's milk. And, uh, and that is most common in Mexico. They do, uh, it's predominantly cow's milk. There is some goat and some sheep, but it's actually not as much as you would think. Uh, in fact, there is a Mexican manchego, and it's made with cow's milk. Uh, but the cows in Mexico are primarily fed on, fed on maize. And of course, and it's a drier diet, it's a drier climate. You know, we have a lot of grass, and so the milk is, is really different. If you look at your milk, um, especially if you get milk from, you know, Borough Market and whatever, and if you look at it through the season, the color changes. Milk is not white. You know, it's kind of yellow, it's kind of green, and, and, and the milk flavor changes. And so what the cow eats really comes through into the flavor and presence of the milk. So um, to have cheese that has primarily a maize-fed diet and a different type of diet, it's just going to taste different. It's also true that, you know, these hygiene practices and standards are different. There's a very high requirement in the UK, so some things that taste kind of 
super duper farmy in a, in a cheese that you might get somewhere in Mexico is often because it's poor hygiene and you just get that interesting taste. <laughs> That's poor hygiene. That's not milk. Um, so, you know, they do have a slightly different taste. But to make the cheeses taste as authentic as possible, we use a mix of um, starter cultures that I've just had to figure it out as we go along. And, and it's the interaction of the starter culture and the milk. Yeah. Right. And so do you use, um, you, you have milk that comes from two, two different, different farms, farms yeah. now, and what are the cattle breeds? Yeah, so they're all Holstein Friesian crosses, which is the most common in the UK. Uh, if you use some of the other, like the Jersey or the Guernsey cows, they have far too high of fat content, because they have like 4.85% of fat. Mexican cheeses are all, by and large, um, pretty low fat, because uh, the milk would end up being skimmed because you'd use the cream for something else. And so okay. a lot of cheeses in Mexico are actually really quite low fat because the cream gets used for something else. Mm -hmm. So I use full fat milk, but I can't use, the Holstein Friesian is, is the fattiest cow that I could potentially use. Okay. So, and um, I think we're gonna try some of these cheeses cooked yeah. and we're gonna talk about the menu in a minute, but I think there may be some questions from people in the audience potentially. So let's see. The gentleman back. Thank you. I was just wondering, um, bearing in mind uh, there are millions of cheeses that start from cow's milk, mm -hmm. how different is the process for making each different cheese? And how do you choose which way, and how do you learn how to do it? It's a really good question. Um, it, it, the subtlety between a Parmesan and like the queso fresco in the process is actually incredibly subtle. And you, you would think that it wouldn't be. Um, and so there is, of course, the type of milk, cow's milk, and there's also the lactic acid bacteria or starter cultures that you introduce, and those often add flavor. However, that's tr and that's true for all cheeses, mm. right? But everything else is a, is a mix of time, temperature, and it's, it's like one degree is a big difference in cheese making. You know, I used to be like, oh yeah, three, four degrees. You're like, yeah, one degree. Uh, how you cut it, uh, and how much rennet you use, et cetera. So each cheese is incredibly subtle in its variation. Um, how I decided to do what I was doing is frankly, you know, you know how it's really good you don't know what you don't know? It was really good I didn't, didn't, didn't know what I didn't know. Um, it was just some trial and error. And trying to look at different, uh, looking at European cheeses that had some of the feel of the cheeses that I wanted and then kind of trying to reverse engineer the process. I took a, a professional cheese making course at the School of Artisan Food up in Nottinghamshire um, with Yvonne Larcher, who is cheese guru. That, that, that class is now taught by uh, Paul Thomas, his way maker. He's amazing. He does, he does um, non-professional courses uh, as well as professional courses, and he's amazing. And we also, he comes down and consults with us, blah, blah, blah. And then I dairy slaved, so you go around to other dairies and, and you, know, you work for free just to get a sense of it. It's like doing a stage, right? Dairy slaving. Are there any any more questions? How did you find your customers, and how do you different? How do you convince and educate your customers, and they should try Mexican cheese yeah. or whatever else? Yeah, um, that's one of the reasons I decided to go into restaurants was the most important thing. When I first went out there, people were saying, "Oh, you should go to retail. You know, restaurants are never going to pay the price that you need." And I go, "Watch me." So um, I started selling the cheese before uh, the cheese was ready. My wife would go out and sell the cheese before the cheese was ready. I mean, sometimes as we were chatting, you just have to be bullshit about it. I mean, of course you have to be honest and ethical and upfront, and you, and, you know, you don't 
lie, but you also get out there and say, this is what I'm doing. I'm working on these cheeses. And then you go to chefs and say, will you taste? You know, will you be a taste partner with me? I'm developing this. And then you create some very, very good relationships. And those customers are customers to this day. And um, they're part of the world and, you know, trying to bring more and more customers into that. But you have to get out there. And I think you had asked that question, which is the, if you want to do something like this, particularly something that's niche, you know, there is no, if you build it, they will come. You have to get out there and make it happen. Thanks for coming. We have a salad, which is the queso fresca, it has black beans, avocado, uh, tomatoes with chili garlic, and the queso fresca on top. And lastly, we have char grilled roasted vegetables with Oaxaca in a uh, quesadilla. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hanyun Cove. There are some wonderful guests coming up in the next few weeks and will be available to download, so make sure you are subscribed to us on iTunes and please leave us a nice review. This show is produced by Hester Kant with recording assistance from Hannah Phoebe Bowen. If you want to come along to one of our talks, you can join our mailing list via our website honeyandco.co.uk or follow us on our social media at honeyandco. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.